following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. continue in our worship now with the reading of the word and our passage today is Acts uh, chapter 4 verses 32 through 5 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Ben. It's good to be here with you. One of the pastors on staff. I think we probably should have read that text before the offering. (laughs) Just so we don't die. This is a weird passage, you know. Good morning, welcome to spring. Don't hold back any money or God's going to kill you at church. (laughs) Oofta. That's really intense. 
It's a very weird story here. We're in, the, we're in the flow of the early chapters of Acts. We're watching this community form as a result of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the community. And in the early chapters, we see this connection to a great hope that God's people had for many hundreds, even thousands of years. That God would come, that the Spirit would, would be poured out. And so we get this impression from Peter that that's happening now. And, and it was unexpected the way it came to pass, and what's happening is unexpected. We've seen images of, they couldn't describe it with language other than it looked like fire floating above people's heads, and people were speaking in, in strange languages, and it was just weird. So we're watching a community form around a spirit that was long awaited, but now that the Holy Spirit is here, stuff is happening that's just not what we predicted. We've seen miracles happen all through the story of Jesus, but they have a common theme, which is they bring life, healing, well-being. There's one that's a little odd when Jesus curses a fig tree and it withers up, and a lot of ink has been spilled over what's going on there. It seems to be the only miracle that removes life or well-being. But this is another one, maybe. Who's killing who here? Is God killing these two? Is Peter using his miraculous power? We just saw him healing a man with messed up ankles. He healed him there. Is he now using the same power to take away life? These are the kinds of questions that I come up with right when I first engage with this. I think, what is going on here? Is this some kind of rule for tithing and offering that we have kind of lost track of for the past 2,000 years? We're all still surviving. This is a very interesting text. I want to think through it together patiently. I want to listen closely to what Luke is trying to say to us. Most importantly, we're working together as a community to hear the Spirit of God speaking to us. Here, right now, in Portland, because this story is not taken in, taking place in modern-day Portland. So we have to kind of work together to hear what is God saying to us through this story. And I'd like you to pray with me because we need some help. I think we could wield this story in some very odd ways. We want to get to the heart of what God would say to us. Let's pray. God, the story that we're looking at today was absolutely shocking when it was first playing out. And now we read it and it's equally as shocking. It's just really strange. So we need your help. We need your help this morning to press through the shock of it all and into your truth, your very life. Pray that you, through your spirit, would help us to be open this morning. And we say thank you. And we say amen. Okay, this opening section, the first, the first paragraph there, is probably familiar to you because we read one very similar to it when we were up in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. There, Luke showed us a community that had formed because men and women had chosen to hold something in common together. They chose to say, we are on mission with Jesus and his people, and so we're going to hold in common the things necessary for that mission to go forth. They held that in common, and they had one then, uh, one body, a sense of togetherness, 
We're coalescing around this thing, this purpose we have in the world. And they had, therefore, as a result, fellowship. We talked when we were in that passage about how we don't go to do fellowshipping. Fellowship is the result of holding something in common. Fellowship happens when you share life together, responsibility, resource, etc. So a spirit, if you will, of togetherness is bonding them, and that's thematic through these opening chapters, really through the whole book of Acts. And that was the Holy Spirit. What's happening here? What was happening as a result? Well, lots of things were happening, I'm sure, but I think specifically there's this sense of opening that's happening. The Spirit is like a can opener, if you will, making a precision cut around a sealed lid and opening people up. In the openness of the Spirit, they were no longer constrained to just one language they could speak. They start speaking other languages. In the openness of the Spirit, they start communing with or, or joining together with people who they otherwise would not have, have joined together with. So you see, in, in even sometimes in very large numbers, in the thousands, something very unique is happening, and I think there's a theme of opening. Something's happening. They were able to connect and bond with people that they may have normally been defensive toward. The can opener cuts open. Now they can absorb. The Torah believers, we know in these first chapters, they, they believe in Torah, the Old Testament. They follow it, and, and they're opened now to not just learn from the apostles, but we learn in chapter 2, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's a massive opening of somebody's heart who has been trained in Torah their entire life. This is the authoritative text. This is the guide. This is important. This is the key. Now they're sitting at the feet of the apostles learning. They're opening up in very radical ways. They were making a conscious choice to hold something in common. The spirit in their church was the Holy Spirit. And that's always a spirit of togetherness. And this is where the plot starts to thicken. Few, I would say, in this room are repulsed by the idea of a community living in harmony. You know, you don't hear that and you're like, oh gosh, that would be awful. Everybody getting along really well and sharing and loving one another. Oh no, thank you. You know, we're all drawn to that idea. It sounds fantastic. Many will agree with that. So it's almost utopian idealism, isn't it? But then you come. People like me, hopefully people like you too, come to the table and you say, how does that actually work? <laughs> how do we pull that off? I think Luke is showing us very small examples of how this became a genuine reality. He's giving us a glimpse of that. Something that seems impossible is truly possible when a group of people chooses to follow Jesus. So first, they made a conscious choice, we've said this a couple times, a conscious choice to hold the mission of Jesus as something we're all responsible for. And that, to them, we've seen several times now, 
was a shared financial responsibility. And they opened their hearts and their minds to a new way of thinking about money and possessions. They didn't just go, they didn't say, well, Jesus came, let's, let's torch all our cash. And they said, we're going to think about our cash differently and our homes and our properties and our vineyards. And they started to think very differently. I would say they, their minds were opened to a different way of thinking about possessions. The move was not to say, okay, personal possessions are bad, so let's not have them anymore. Instead, it was our property is now viewed and is now used in a much more open way. My money and my possessions are no longer just closed off for me and mine, but instead I hold my resources in a way where they're open to the needs of those in the community. I'm thinking about them differently. Like a family, if a family member is in need, I give to that family member to help that family member. So there's this idea of bondedness that opens them up and it, and it hits them in a place that's often very raw for us, which is the pocketbook, our finances. We're told that they were sharing everything, including their food, and that they were doing so not because, yeah, okay, we got to get through this, whatever, here's my cash. No, they were doing so, it says, with glad and humble hearts. They were stoked. This is a better way to live than the way we've been living. They saw it. They saw it in Jesus, and they followed him. As a result of their choice to live this way, they had that true spirit of togetherness. And in a church that has the spirit of fellowship, people are opening up into life. So Luke is showing us the first flourishings of God's kingdom, the concrete reality of God's kingdom, which is showing us the kind of life that real Christians live. Christians who do not want this kind of openness toward others, who do not want to give or share or help with others. Well, that's an interesting juxtaposition. I think they're likely people who think of themselves as really good swimmers and yet have never gotten in the lake. You see them standing on the edge of the water on the beach while everybody else is splashing and swimming. And they're practicing the front crawl in the air, you know. And they're believing truly that they're swimming. As we come to the end of chapter 4, we meet Ananias and Sapphira, and I think this is them. They're standing on that shore, air swimming, but not really swimming in the water. And by hiding, they're able to do this, at least in their own minds, and we see in Peter's response to them that it doesn't work that well. <laughs> but they're hiding who they really are. They're hiding behind something. They want to be known as swimmers, but they don't want to get in the water, if that makes sense. I think that metaphor is probably a little too cute to impact us the way Luke wants to. So he tells the real story, and it's brutal, and we have these two people, a husband and a wife, who will choose 
to hide. They will choose to hide what is real about who they are. It's a choice to not be open. It's a choice to stay behind a facade. And therefore, it's a choice to walk away from life and into death, to embrace death. Notice what this entire passage is going to be about, life and death. Sometimes the, the statements from God that I heard when I was young where he was trying to speak to me to say, Ben, come alive in me. I heard through various other voices, I heard that as sort of condemning judgment. That's not the voice of God. The voice of God will convict, but not condemn or judge. So please don't walk away from this Sunday feeling condemned or judged, but instead brought to a place of thinking clearly about where you really are for real. In verses 32 and 37 of our passage today, which McKenzie already read, we see that first summary passage I was just talking about in Acts chapter 2, almost on repeat. Luke describes them as being of one heart, one-mindedness. They had a shared narrative. They believed they were all part of the same story as it was playing out. Again, Luke reminds us in this passage, as he did in chapter 2, that they saw their possessions as things that were available to the common community. They held everything in common, he says again. So clearly he wants us to continue seeing this theme. Now, look more closely with me at verse 34. For there was no one needy among them, because those who were owners of the land or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds from the sales and placing them at the apostles' feet. And the proceeds were distributed to each as anybody had need. Notice they are not evening out the wealth. The idea here was not, uh-oh, Jesus came, so now the concepts of rich and poor are bad. There should no longer be wealthy or those who are not wealthy. They're not trying to even out who has what. They're saying human life really matters and those who are in need are in need and worthy of being helped. And if I have more, I will give to those who don't out of my own volitional choice, a loving choice to, to help. So don't read into this some sense of, they were just trying to even the playing field. Instead, it was the Holy Spirit trying to bend their will towards something even more beautiful than just self-preservation or self-expansion. Instead, it was an open-heartedness toward the other. They're making sure everybody has what they need. And we wonder, well, okay, that's cool. That makes sense. Was that like a rule they had to follow? Was this a new law they were supposed to obey? And the answer is no. We'll see in the next part of the story here in just a minute or two that the money was at their disposal. They could do with it what they wanted to. It is for freedom that Christ sets us free. He wants us to say for real, how are you using your life? How are you bending your will and to what are you bending your will? What's happening here is that the community is so encouraged and so open and free in the spirit. Notice their king, their friend, their great teacher has died and has resurrected and shown them 
that all of what they were so terrified about in this world really has no sway over them anymore. So you're seeing courage on display, and it's loving courage. And so they say, this is the kind of people we want to be. We want to give our stuff so that we don't need to have people in the community who are starving or unclothed or don't have shelter. We want to be this kind of community. This is how we're going to live. And we want to do this because we see Jesus doing the same exact kinds of things, giving out of his limited resource for our well-being. We watched him do it. We saw him resurrect from the dead. We heard him promise that we're with him in that. And so we're going to live the way that he lived. So they're stoked on it. And what it does is it causes them in this community, in this day, Some of them have started to do this thing where they sell an old vineyard and they take all of the proceeds and give it to the apostles or an old home or one that's extra that they don't need or whatever. And they're putting the money directly at the apostles' feet, which was a way of not giving it directly to the apostle or to a person. Instead, they're laying it down into the common pool of money. By laying it down at his feet, they were saying, we trust you to do with it what's best. Five verses. In five verses right here, Luke talks about laying it down at the apostles' feet three separate times. He's emphasizing the action of openness and free giving. A no-strings-attached kind of giving. They are not expecting some sort of personal returned benefit. They're saying, I'm giving this for others. I'm not giving this to get something back or something I want to see happen. They're just giving. It's open. For from the time to time, sorry, from time to time, those who owned land or houses, they sold them, they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anybody who had need. Joseph, he sold the field. He owned, he brought the money, he put it at the apostles' feet. Notice by doing this, giving out of their openness and trust, it was very different than giving with certain expectations. And I think we can learn from this example. When we're looking for the Spirit's presence, we're looking for more than a rule or for a law to follow. What is the Spirit in this room? What is our spirit as a collected people of God? In this scenario, Luke seems to be emphasizing the notion of freedom, experiencing what it is like to trust in God, and with no expectation of of a return. He's showing us a picture of people who are experiencing something that many of us may never experience. This is a very strong picture of abandoning in a really positive way to the will of God. Does this mean, therefore, that it is somehow sinful or selfish or satanic to give money and say, I want my money to go to this project or to this person? I don't think so. I don't think that's sinful. I'd say, of course, that's not sinful or stupid. All throughout church history, even throughout Central Bible Church history, we have projects and capital campaigns and things that we try to fund. It's common in our history as the people of God. 
But we have to be open about that kind of giving. If that's the only way we give, I only give to projects that I like or people I prefer or something like that, I think we're actually living in a very closed space. It's not that it's necessarily sinful or terrible, but it is different. And if it's the only way that we give, I suspect that it won't be too long before the notion of giving in the church becomes very isolating. And it's actually constraining and tense. It raises tension. Gosh, I need to make sure this and that and this and that and that. And we, and we actually don't get to experience the freedom, the openness of just opening our hearts and minds to God and giving to Him. I know it's hard to live this out, but I'm confident from Luke's writing that this example of laying the gifts down at the apostles' feet is worth paying attention to. Just think on it. Think on it and assess your own motives and your own heart as it relates to these kinds of things. I have, in, in my time in the church as a Christian, I had just sort of brought in my values from a consumer world into my tithing and giving. And as I did, it looked pretty quickly like I was going shopping for the things that I liked the best. And I think it was a good start for me to become generous just to think about giving of my resources at all. It has been another level of freedom for me and for my wife, another level of freedom to step out of that into something that looks, I think, more like actually laying it down at the feet instead of setting it in their hands with instructions on how it should be used. Now imagine this, okay? If you can imagine, you're sitting there. You're standing in this line with all the other people. The apostles are up in the front, and everybody's kind of lined up, and they have their leather bags of coins or other valuables, and they're going up to lay them down at their feet. You feel that spirit of togetherness. We're all owning this. We're all in it together. You see your friends in the room. And you're feeling that, and you're experiencing that freedom, that love, that connectedness, unlike anything you've ever felt that the money itself could have bought for you. It's awesome. But then two people in the community, a husband and a wife, they're not opening up to this life. Instead, they're hiding unto death. Pick it up in the first verse of chapter 5 with me. 5 verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, and he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, pause. What's the problem here? Is it pride? Is it greed? We've talked a lot about open-hearted generosity so far. Is the problem that they're not being generous enough? It looks like the issue is they had enough money to give, but they held some of their money back, and that's what they did wrong. They should have given it all. I don't think that's actually the issue. The issue is that they chose to hide, to lie, to not be honest with who they were and what they wanted to give that day. 
I wonder what Peter's reaction would have been if they simply walked up and said, hey, Peter, we sold the cornfield. We got 200 bucks for it. We only want to give 100, though. They're open. They're honest. And they say, we want to keep half. Okay. The problem here is the deceitfulness. They put an image up for everybody to see. So the community is participating. The community has said, we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to do uh, what we're going to do with the monies that we receive from sales of peripheral properties that we no longer need. When we sell one of those, we're going to give all of that to this pool of resource. So as everybody's doing that, they come in and they put on that costume. Hey, we're going to do that too. We're going to do the same thing. So we're, we're going to be together with the community. We're going to do what the community is doing. And yet they're not. The principle here is hiding. The principle here is lying, not a certain percentage of the proceeds, if that makes sense. I wonder what they felt like inside. I imagine him walking up, knowing that he's not actually with the people, but pretending he's with the people and with God. What's his heart feeling like? Well, I think he's probably pretty nervous in church. He's not, he's not feeling it. It's not, it's not doing it for him. Here he is. He's going up. Verse 3, chapter 5. Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? The money is yours. He says, didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? It's your land. You know, parentheses, you don't have to give it. And then after you sold the property, the money was at your disposal. You are allowed and free to do with it what you want to do with it. Ananias, this is Peter talking to him. So what made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied just to human beings. You've actually lied to God. Peter reminds him he wasn't under an obligation to give a certain amount of money or a certain percentage of money or anything. There was a spirit of togetherness in the community, and they pretended they were in it. And Peter says, why are you pretending to the people? And my gosh, you might even be able to dupe the people. But you don't honestly believe that you can dupe God, <laughs> the Holy Spirit of God. You don't think you're that smart, do you? Why? Peter sees a husband and wife here who are hiding unto death, literally taking in the heart of Satan rather than the Spirit of God. Peter knows what it's like to do that. <laughs> Remember in Mark chapter 8 when we were going through Mark? Peter took in the heart of Satan when Jesus told him, I'm going to have to suffer and die. And Peter said, no way, man. And Jesus turned around and he said, well, you're Satan to me now. You've taken in. Peter knows what it's like to take darkness in and try to make it work with goodness. It just doesn't work. So I think Peter's speaking to them out of compassion and understanding, but also deep anguish. You didn't just lie to me and to our church. You lied to God. People have drifted very, very far from God 
when they think that their fake image of holiness is something that God actually believes. When they think that their fake image of Christian living is something that God can't see right through. If that's where you sit, notice every Christian in this room sits in that spot from time to time throughout our life. (laughs) So don't feel any fingers wagging at you, but step out of it because it's killing you and you know it. And it hurts. It hurts deeply in the soul to pretend you're following Jesus when you're really not. You know that. You don't need me to prove it to you. The beauty is that Jesus forgives you, picks you up, and draws you right back into the fold when you repent. Peter sees the drift so far from God that he has to say to them, Satan has filled your heart now. He has filled your heart so full of fake lies that you actually think God won't notice how you're trying to tweak the truth. It's like when you watch into the kitchen. (laughs) Some of you parents maybe have done this. Maybe you have been the kids who did this. You walk into the kitchen, and there's your five-year-old boy on the counter with the cookie jar, and he's got chocolate all over his face, crumbs all over the floor, everywhere. And you just look at him, and you say, did you eat cookies out of the cookie jar? No. (laughs) You know. That's funny. It's silly. And I think it's exactly the position that many grown adults sit in every Sunday, pretending and hiding, thinking that their true Father, God Almighty in heaven, can't see what they're trying to pull off. They think they're doing all right, like my boy, sitting there with chocolate all over his face. People who say in church, I love Jesus. Oh, I do. And then in their hearts say, we should kill our enemies. Or at least keep them away from the church. That's cookie jar time right there. People who say, I am supportive of CB and I want to see it succeed. But then for all sorts of even very good reasons, simply don't share time or resources with this community. Notice, I'm not saying that sharing time and resources with this community is the only right way to love God. I'm just saying, if that's not what you want to do, don't say it is and pretend that it is. You can do that elsewhere. Participation here. This is a free community with free people choosing. What will I do? Why will I do it? Choosing to embrace openness into freedom with one another. That's what we're trying to do here. You can do it or you don't do it. But don't choose to stay on the sideline and try to pretend that you're part of the team. You can't stay on the shore and pretend you're swimming. You can't sit there gobbling down cookies and pretend you're not. (laughs) It just doesn't work to one another, but especially to God. People who say, I believe that God loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. And then they scream at their own children 
seeking to dominate them with power and control, threatening them with hell and damnation to scare them into obedience? How about publicly declaring that I love kids and really believe deep down that we're supposed to be following Jesus' example who brought the children to himself and he cared for them. And I make sure everybody in my life knows how much I treasure children. And yet I simply refuse to support the children in my life or the children around in my community. That's cookie jar time. Nobody comes into a community just sort of boldly proclaiming, I don't like kids because it's not acceptable. But I think some of us need to stand before a mirror and say that. I actually don't like them. Be honest. And when you are honest, something happens to you. The Holy Spirit sheds light on that. I remember one time I was at a, a conference and, the, and we sang a song opening up before the speaker got up. And the chorus was, I want to be more like you, Jesus. I want to be more like you. And the speaker got up and raised, he said, raise your hand if you want to be more like Jesus. Everybody raised their hand, of course. And then he challenged us to look at the mirror at the end of the day and think about all of the things that we did. And he said, say to yourself, every single thing I did today was something I wanted to do. So often we lie even to ourselves and we say, oh, I wish I wasn't doing that. I don't want to be doing that. That's, I don't want to do that. And yet what we choose to do is what we want to do. And we can be open about that and honest before God. Sometimes when I do that, I say, man, this is actually what I want. And it's, and it's shameful. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, I should not want that. God, please help change my appetites and my desires. Mold me into your way of thinking. Where are we pretending? I think that cookie jar scenario is not that different from an Ananias and Sapphira presenting themselves as giving all the proceeds. Here's all of it. When in reality, they didn't want to do that. To use Peter's words, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God You'd be surprised to see the statistic that shows how many times people in our communities, and we can expand this into just American church life at large, how often we publicly proclaim love for children or for neighbors or for people who are in need and yet never actually serve neighbors and children and people in need. It, it reduces, first and foremost, our own souls. It puts us into an enclosure place in the darkness. God loves you deeply. Be honest with him and be honest with the Christians around you. That way we can honestly, truthfully help one another grow. Today, my friends, we need to pay attention to where God is and ask ourselves, am I actually living in this open free, loving spirit of God? Is it opening me up? Or have I chosen a different path that I'm trying to decorate with sort of Christian-y words and phrases, church stuff? And Ananias chose to decorate what looks to be like a selfish heart with a costume that looks like generosity. 
And the great sacrilege that he com commits is expressed. It's very powerful in the Greek. You have, uh, you have belied the Holy Spirit. You have, you have falsified the Holy Spirit. Ben Witherington is a scholar I enjoy reading, and he writes this. His action was a falsification of what the Spirit was doing and was prompting the community to be. And there's a connection here to Judas's similar choice. The parallel between Ananias and Judas includes not only the entering of the heart by Satan, but also money is involved as well as land. There's some parallels there. Judas, too, started to get, he didn't want to actually be a part of the team, though he pretended that he was. And we're told from the gospel writers, it for him was for material gain. And he ends up the same way. He's overtaken by darkness. Notice then, this text has a very strong potential to almost put you into darkness, to make you feel ashamed and terrible or something like that, but it's not that. It is a warning, and it is convicting, but it's helping to bring us into life and love and openness in the Holy Spirit. Peter the Apostle clearly has the gift of seeing into the heart of Ananias and so and of people, but notice how Peter doesn't judge him. And Peter doesn't condemn him. And now we come back to those questions of how do these guys die? Let's finish the rest of this passage. When Ananias heard this, what Peter had confronted him with, he didn't judge him, he didn't condemn him, but he did confront him. He said, are you seriously going to do this, bro? When he had heard this, he fell down and died. <laughs> and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Yeah, I don't even know why Luke put that sentence in there. Of course, everybody was terrified. They're just like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Then some young men came forward and they wrapped up his body and they carried him out and they buried him immediately. That's a big deal. No ceremony, nothing. This is what you did when you believed somebody was struck down by God. They just move him out quickly and bury him. That's very strange. Then, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Well, yeah, she said, that's the price. But her heart was just thumping. Where's my husband? Why is Peter asking me that? And why is everybody in the room just absolute pin drop silence staring at me right now? <laughs> you know, what's going on? You can imagine the tension rising. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, this is his way of saying, you still have a chance here. Listen, they're coming for you. The feet of the men who buried your husband, that's the first time she hears he's dead, and buried already. The feet are coming to take you away as well. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the entire church and all who heard about these events. What was the fear about? I'm sure it was, it was lots of different things. But certainly they're wondering about how quickly these, this couple's life was just sapped out of them. Some of us are freaking out right now, and I think we should be. Because it's a miracle, it looks like, that leads to death. And that would be a very strange miracle. Here's what I want to say about that. We don't really know exactly what's going on here. 
We don't have Luke in any kind of way emphasizing that God is the one behind the death. It's there. I've just suggested the way they get buried makes me think that the community saw it as an act of God. However, Luke, if that's what he wants to say, doesn't say it. It'd be very easy for him to just outright tell us that. There's no emphasis about who it was that killed him. Some look at to Peter, but in Peter, we don't see any curse formula. We would have language we would expect him to use if he was somehow pronouncing a curse over them. That doesn't seem to be the case. I've read a few guys this week who are like, it could very well just be the absolute overwhelming sense of being outed publicly and shown for who you really are and just the absolute terror of that. And maybe he had a, a, we just don't know what's going on. But it's overwhelming to them. And I think this thing we can walk away with is it leads unto death. Who did it? I'm not totally positive, or how it came to pass, I don't know for sure, but I know that it's a picture of making a certain choice and having a very deathly consequence as a, re- as a result. It sounds to me like Peter is not cursing them as much as he's in anguish about it. So here you have Ananias and Sapphira. They're tightly bound together. Togetherness is a wonderful thing for a husband and wife, unified, etc. However, This is the wrong kind of unity because their togetherness is breaking up the togetherness of the community. You see? It's very interesting. She has a chance to repent but doesn't. He gives her a spirit-inspired prophetic word. You hear those footsteps coming. Is this really the route you want to go? He's telling her, I think, about what's about to happen if she doesn't turn back but she stays hiding. She keeps up the facade and it leads to death. I think that that's the big takeaway for us. Hiding, deceiving, putting up a fake image of where we're at so we can feel somewhat connected, but it's not real. It's actually a place of death. It's like the song we sang earlier, it's a lesser love. It's no good. Where are we then as a church And we could think big, like American church or whatever. I just want to talk about our community. Where are we as a people, as a church? We talk often about loving neighbors. We talk often about loving this church, wanting to support it and see it flourish. We talk often about how much we love children and want to see them grow up in the ways of Jesus. We talk about Christianity and the ways of Jesus often. And that's good. And we're going to keep talking about that. And you should talk about it way more than I do. And we should all be talking about it. The question is, is our talking about Christian life, is our talking about what's right and wrong and good and holy, is that actually coming from who we truly are becoming? Or is all that talking a way to hide who we are remaining as? Does that make sense? That's important. God is patient with us, and he's loving toward us, so let's be honest with him and with one another. As you give financially to this community, you should be able to stand behind that with honesty, even if it's very little or very large. The place where your soul is eroding is if you give and you want to make sure it stays hidden 
for some reason. What it is you're willing to contribute or able to contribute is something to be honest about, open about. And that's one example, but that is certainly not the whole example of this passage. I think it's bigger. We can expand it. And I'll close with this thought. I'm reminded of a non-believer, famous, prominent person in our country once describing the state of the American evangelical church. And he said, this whole thing would just make sense, would make perfect sense to me if people would just put a little sign above their church door that says, pretend. Then I would get it. Because I hear a lot of talk, talk, talk about this and that. And then oftentimes it doesn't quite match. So, God the Holy Spirit, through this passage in the New Testament, I believe as a church today, he's speaking to us. And he's speaking to us a question about honesty, about openness, and about being willing to stand where we are, who we are, as who we are, before one another and before God. And if we're willing to do that, we will sharpen and grow and become more mature and holy and loving and all of those wonderful things. But as long as we maintain any kind of facade at all, we will be trapped in a place of death. And that can hurt a church. We all know that. (laughs) We all know that. So let's ask Jesus to help us be open into his life. Father, thank you. Thank you for telling us, teaching us about your life and about what it means to be with you. Together with one another, learning to love you, learning to love neighbor as ourself. We talk about it a lot. We think about it a lot. Help us to actually be honest about how much we really do love you and your way of life especially. And Father, if we don't, if we stand here feeling a draw to you and yet not really loving your way of life, I ask that you'd help us to be honest about that so we can just say it. Say it to one another and and think openly worshiping you with our minds, thinking about why we don't love your way of life, and then asking, help us to be reasonable with one another and sharpen one another. Why don't we? What do we love more than you? What are we chasing that we feel is more important than you? Help us to be honest about those things, and then when we are toward one another, give our community a spirit of togetherness and forgiveness, where we were and where we will be able to confront but never condemn where we will be willing to challenge but never to harm, always picking one another up, seeking your face together as a people. We love you, we trust you, and we are so thankful for you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.